It's 1918 at a post office in Chicago, Illinois. In the back room, a 16-year-old boy digs through a never-ending stack of mail. This future Hollywood legend will one day produce dozens of films and win 32 Academy Awards, but today, Walter Elias Disney is just a mailboy. As he does his work, his mind wanders, but not to dreams of future fame or fortune. Young Walt is thinking about war thousands of miles away. The Allied forces have just beaten back the latest German offensive in France, but World War I is not yet over. Walt's older brother Roy has already enlisted. Walt's too young, but he wants to serve his country. A few weeks back, Walt tried to sneak across the border to enlist in the Canadian Army, but he got caught. His parents were furious. Still, he hasn't given up on the idea of getting into the fight. Just then, Walt's boss pops into the mailroom to tell him he has a visitor. When Walt steps into the lobby, he sees his good friend Russell waiting for him, wide-eyed with excitement. Russell tells Walt there's a volunteer group here called the American Ambulance Corps, part of the Red Cross. They need drivers. But there's a catch, Russell says. To sign up, you have to be 17 years old, which means the boys will have to lie about their age. Walt doesn't blink. In what is perhaps one of his earliest artistic achievements, Walt forges his official documents, changing his age to 17. Later that day, Walt and Russell go to the Red Cross and volunteer. Within a matter of months, both will be shipped off to France. But this will not be the last time Walt Disney will serve his country. Decades after World War I, on November 10, 1940, Walt will once again answer the call of duty, this time as an FBI spy. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is November 10th, Walt Disney, the spy. It's mid-November 1918, 22 years before Walt becomes an informant for the government. Walt lays in bed at the Ambulance Corps barracks in South Beach, Connecticut. The rest of the corpsmen are fast asleep, but Walt can't stop tossing and turning. Lately, his life has been chaotic. Not long after Walt volunteered, he fell ill. The 1918 influenza pandemic or the Spanish flu, as it's commonly known, hit Chicago hard. Thousands of Chicagoans have contracted the flu. Hundreds have died. Walt was so sick with fever and delirium that his supervisor sent him home. After his mother nursed him back to health, Walt returned to the ambulance corps only to learn that his friend Russell and the rest of his unit had already been shipped overseas. Walt was assigned to a new unit and sent to Connecticut to wait for his chance to get into the action. But days later, Walt learned that the war was over, brought to an end with an armistice agreement. Now, the best Walt can hope for is to be sent overseas as a glorified chauffeur. As he lays in bed, Walt is despondent. Of course, he's happy the Allies won, but he's disappointed he missed his chance to serve in a war zone. Lost in his thoughts, Walt finally drifts off to sleep. Not long after, someone flips on the lights and shouts, Up everybody! Up everybody! 50 guys going to France. One of Walt's fellow corpsmen shakes him awake, saying, Hey, Diz, wake up. They're shipping out 50 guys. 
but Walt's lost all hope. As he rolls over to go back to sleep, he groans, they won't pick me. But Walt is wrong. Out of 50 names, Disney is the last one to be called. On November 18, 1918, Walt boards an ocean liner and begins the journey across the Atlantic. Walt will spend one year in France. While there, he will tend to the sick and give tours to important officials. In his spare time, he'll draw cartoons and sell them to his co-workers. Some of his drawings, especially the patriotic ones, will be published in the Army newspaper Stars and Stripes. Walt will never get his chance to serve in a war zone, but his patriotism and his eagerness to do his duty will eventually catch the eye of a very important government official, J. Edgar Hoover. In November 1918, the same month that Walt is sent off to France, Hoover gets a job in the Justice Department as the assistant to the Attorney General. One of Hoover's earliest assignments is helping to prosecute anti-war radicals. As part of the job, he keeps a list of the names of draft dodgers and political agitators. But he also takes inventory of young volunteers, patriots who are eager to serve their country, young men like Walt Disney. Hoover knows that these individuals will be helpful in his career-long struggle to defend America from enemies foreign and domestic. In the aftermath of World War I, America is in the midst of its first Red Scare. Many Americans, including J. Edgar Hoover, see communism as the next great threat to the American way of life. Overseas, Russia recently experienced a leftist revolution. And on the home front, many Americans fear that communist influence, especially in the growing labor rights movement, will lead to similar anarchy. It's in this context that Hoover's career begins to take off. In 1919, Hoover is promoted to the head of the Justice Department's General Intelligence Division, which later becomes part of the Bureau of Investigation, a precursor to the FBI. Hoover, a man known for his fierce intelligence, quickly rises to the top job, director of the Bureau of Investigation. As Hoover begins his lifelong crusade against communism, Walt Disney moves to Los Angeles to begin his career in show business. But Walt will find Hollywood inhospitable, and he will struggle to make his dreams come true. But soon, these two titans of history will cross paths, and Hoover will make a frustrated Walt Disney an offer he can't refuse. It's February 1928 in a room at the Astor Hotel in New York, 12 years before Walt begins working as a spy for the FBI. Again, Walt lays in bed, his eyes wide open and his thoughts racing. Walt has come to New York to meet with one of his financiers, a producer named Charles Mintz. Last year, Mintz paid Walt to create a new cartoon series starring Walt's latest creation, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. This series, recently distributed by Universal Pictures, is a hit, and for Walt's studio, it's a much-needed win after years of near-misses and outright failures. Walt should be celebrating, but he can't stop thinking about how horribly the meeting went. At the start of their collaboration, Mintz agreed to pay Walt an advance of $2,225 per cartoon. But at the meeting, Mintz told Walt that deal was off. The new deal was only $1,800, and if Walt didn't like it, Mintz told him, he would fire Walt and take over production of all future Oswald projects. Furious, Walt stormed out of the room. Now he stares at the ceiling and stews with rage. Walt is no stranger to the ups and downs of the entertainment business. 
After being fired from a newspaper for what they told him was a lack of imagination, Walt struck out on his own and formed Laugh-A-Gram Studios, but the company was upside down in just two years. Still, Walt refused to give up on his dreams. In 1923, when he first came to Hollywood, he struggled to find work as a director. So he and his brother Roy started another enterprise, a studio that one day will become the Walt Disney Company. But today, it's just a small, fledgling operation. Oswald the Lucky Rabbit is critical to this company's financial future. Suddenly, Walt's phone rings. When he picks it up, it's his brother Roy on the other end of the line. Take the deal, Roy tells him. We don't have any other options. Walt is frustrated, but he knows his brother is right. The contract he signed gives Mintz ownership over Oswald, which means Mintz can do as he likes. But Roy has another idea for his brother. Come up with a different character and save the studio. As legend has it, on the train ride back home that next day, Walt was struck by a memory from his time at Laugh-A-Gram. As Walt will later tell it, mice gathered in my wastebasket when I worked late at night. I lifted them out and kept them in little cages on my desk. One of them was my particular friend. By the end of that train ride, Walt had created the first ever image of the character that would come to be known as Mickey Mouse. But even Mickey doesn't reverse Walt's fortunes right away. The first two Mickey Mouse films fail to find a distributor. Mickey eventually catches on in 1928 with the hit film Steamboat Willie. But in spite of Mickey's success, for Walt, the next decade will be full of high highs and low lows, booms and busts. By the 1930s, Walt's studio is still a small operation. Walt has bigger ambitions for his company than just a cartoon mouse, but he will need help to achieve these goals. He'll find it in the most unlikely of places. It's impossible to know for certain, but it's conceivable that J. Edgar Hoover first heard the name Walt Disney back in November of 1918, when he began to familiarize himself with American patriots eager to enlist in the Army. But there's no question that Hoover knew Walt's name by 1936. In July of that year, Hoover sends Walt a letter that reads in part, I am indeed pleased that we can be of service to you. Hoover knows the Bureau can help Walt achieve his goals in Hollywood. And he also knows Walt is just the sort of man who will be eager to help the Bureau stop the spread of communism. By 1936, Hoover is deeply worried by the rise of labor unions in Hollywood. He wants Walt to be the Bureau's eyes and ears on the ground. Hoover is confident that Walt will say yes to his proposal, because in addition to helping Walt with his career, Hoover can also help Walt unlock the truth about a Disney family secret one that's been plaguing Walt for over 20 years. It's November 10th, 1940, in Washington, D.C. 39-year-old Walt Disney strolls through the streets. He puts his hat down low over his eyes. He wants to keep a low profile and blend in with the crowd. Walt isn't here for pleasure. He's here to meet with Special Agent E.E. E. Conroy and finalize a deal with the FBI. For Walt, the offer is too good to pass up. If he agrees to inform on his colleagues and report back any and all communist activities he encounters in Hollywood, the Bureau will do more than help his studio thrive. They'll help him answer a question that's been gnawing at him for decades. Before Walt volunteered for the Ambulance Corps during World War I, he tried to enlist in the United States Army, so he set out to secure a copy of his birth certificate, which his parents didn't have. But when Walt went to the Chicago records office, 
he was surprised to learn that his birth certificate didn't exist. This left Walt wondering if his father and mother, Elias and Flora Disney, were his real parents. Walt and his father, Elias, always had an estranged relationship. Elias was a hard man, short-tempered, and often violent. Walt always wondered if Elias was cruel to him because he wasn't his biological son. And as years went on, Walt's curiosity turned into an obsession. Decades later, the Bureau makes Walt a compelling offer. If Walt agrees to act as an informant, the FBI will help Walt uncover the truth about his past. Walt agrees. On November 10, 1940, the Washington Post published a story with the headline, Walt Disney Strolls Unrecognized in Washington. When the reporter, who did recognize him, asked Walt why he was in town, Walt responded, just to see the sights. But the truth is, his trip to Washington marks the beginning of a 26-year relationship between Walt and the FBI. As an informant, Walt is tasked with reporting on the activities of suspected communists in Hollywood. And in the years that follow, Disney speaks out against unions and strikes, and he even testifies before the House Committee on Un-American Activities and names names. Walt is eventually promoted from informant to special agent. But the FBI will never find out the truth about Walt's parents. According to some reports, in his later years, Walt will come to believe he's the illegitimate child of a Spanish doctor and his mistress, but there's no concrete evidence. Still, over the years, Walt receives plenty in return for his services to the government. Hoover lets Walt film at FBI headquarters. He even helps Walt acquire permits to build Disneyland in Los Angeles. But the full scope of the relationship will never be known. In the 1990s, Walt's FBI file is released under the Freedom of Information Act, but over 500 pages are redacted or withheld for reasons of national security. Next on History Daily, November 11, 1918. An armistice agreement brings an end to World War I, but on the field, the battle continues. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing and sound design by Misha Stanton. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Nikki McKay. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser.